pastor and author Kent Hughes, in his commentary to the book of Luke, tells a story about a friend of his wife. For the sake of our story today, I'm going to refer to this friend of his wife as Carol. Carol was on a missionary furlough with her family after a particularly long and tiring stint on the mission field. She was really looking forward to coming back home, and as a part of coming back home, she was going to get to live for the very first time in a townhouse-styled condo that had a patio, which she promptly decorated as soon as she moved in. Not too long after this, some new neighbors arrived. Um, The word to describe the new neighbors would have been coarse. There was loud music that came from their place pretty much day and night and a fairly constant stream of profanity. They did things like urinate in broad daylight on their front yard. They were really, they just, they were not pleasant people to be around. And there was no peace for Carol and her family. And she just couldn't find, even though she really tried anything good about her new neighbors. She, she asked God several times, God, help me to be more loving. But all she received back from the neighbors was just disgust and rejection. Well, Things came to a head one day when she came home and she saw that the neighbor children had sprayed orange fluorescent paint all over her patio, on the fence, on the floor, on all the furnishings. Carol was furious. She, she knew she shouldn't, but all, all, she could, all she could think was, God, I cannot love these people. I hate them. Well... She knew that she had to deal with the sin in her heart. So once she calmed down, she started talking to God. And uh, when she did that, a scripture came to mind. It was Colossians 3.16, which says, Above all things, put on love. Clothe yourself in love, which is the bond of perfect unity. Carol started asking God questions. She said, God, how can I put on love? toward my neighbors. And the only way that she could, she could get her wrap her head around it was to think of it like putting on a coat. She decided to wrap herself in God's love. And as she did, she began to experience a deeper love of Christ within her, including for her neighbors. What she began to do, she said, I'm going to make a list of all the things, if I really love my neighbors, that I would be doing. And then I'm going to do those things. So that's exactly what she did. She started doing things like baking cookies. She offered to babysit for free. She invited the mother over for coffee. And you know what? An interesting thing began to happen. She began to see and understand her, her, her neighbors differently she began to see that they were a family that were under tremendous pressures. She began to love her enemies. She began to do good towards her neighbors. She even lent to them without expecting anything in return. Well, 
not too many months passed, and the day came that the neighbors moved out. And you know what Carol did? She wept. She cried. Because something had changed within her. There was an unnatural, unconventional love that had captured her heart. It was the love of Jesus. It was a love without limits. Today, as we continue our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're going to ponder his words on loving others like Carol's neighbors who sometimes are very difficult to love. We're going to ponder his words about loving without limits. So I'm going to invite you to do something. I'm going to invite you all to stand right now. Go ahead and stand. As we prepare to read aloud together Jesus' words to his disciples on the mountainside and Jesus' words to us today. Let's read these together aloud. You ready? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Please be seated. And ushers, if we can turn on the rest of the house lights, I think it'll uh, just help a little bit here. Thanks so much. On the mount, we read Jesus' statement to his disciples, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Over the past two weeks, we learned that verses that follow Jesus' statement describe the kind of righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And over the past two weeks, we've considered four of Jesus' six examples of greater righteousness or the higher standards of the kingdom. They dealt with anger, sexual purity and lust, marriage and divorce, and oaths and integrity of speech. Today, we continue with Jesus' sermon by pondering his words on loving others whom, for one reason or another, are difficult to love. His fifth and sixth examples deal with forsaking retaliation 
and loving one's enemies. In our focal passage today, Jesus alludes to Exodus 21-24 and Deuteronomy 19-21. There we see the law of retaliation. It demanded that punishment for an assault be commensurate with the damage inflicted. If someone was assaulted and lost a tooth, the perpetrator had to forfeit a tooth. If the victim was blinded in one eye, one of the assailant's eyes was to be put out. If the victim's hand was maimed, the perpetrator's hand was to be maimed. One purpose of the law was to ensure justice to the victim and to, de- and to, and to deter crime. But the law was also intended to prevent excessive punishment that did not fit the crime as well as to prevent self-appointed vigilante action. Here, Jesus condemns the way that the law of retaliation was being abused to promote personal revenge. Domination, exploitation, and injustice were everyday experiences for the people of Palestine. Everyone lived at the mercy of the Romans, who ruled with an iron grip, in every arena of life. The powerless were abused by the powerful. So personal retaliation through violent resistance was a burning issue among the Jews. Those who were hurt wanted to strike back, especially when there was no apparent justice to protect them. Within this oppressive atmosphere, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. On a personal level, the disciples' first responsibility is to reverse the dynamic of the situation from taking to giving. The evil person has attempted to take, but Jesus' disciples, you and me, are to give to the offender by serving him or her. Jesus' disciples are not to seek retribution. When abused... They and we must think of ways to advance the kingdom of heaven and its influence on this earth. We are to love without limits. The first image, or sorry, Jesus uses four illustrations from everyday life to emphasize how his disciples can serve those who mistreat them, how they can love without limits. The first image involves public insult. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Striking a person on the right cheek suggests a backhanded slap from a typically right-handed aggressor and was a characteristic Jewish form of insult and subordination. This was a symbolic way of affronting a person's dignity and honor. Rude military personnel were known to treat subjugated people peoples in this way. Here Jesus challenges the desire for personal vindication, for revenge, when insulted and demeaned. The society Jesus lived in was obsessed with honor and shame, but he exhorts his disciples not to trade insults, but to release their need to defend their honor and be obsessed with the honor that God bestows. A female friend of mine was recently verbally insulted by her non-Christian boss when my friend received a new job assignment that demeaned her abilities. 
My friend, who is a Christ follower, chose in that moment not to defend her honor, nor to respond with retaliatory remarks. My friend chose to love without limits by turning the other cheek. How are you doing with cheek turning? We should note that Jesus' command to turn the other cheek does not require Christians to subject themselves or others to physical danger or abuse. This illustration, this image, is not primarily about the physical hurt. It's about the insult from the slap. That is the focus of the message, the the degradation of someone else's honor, the insult toward them. The second illustration that Jesus uses depicts a legal setting and deals with economic deprivation in economic relationships. Jesus says, As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The the version of the Bible we read earlier said, if they want to take away your shirt, let them have your coat as well. And that would be a a modern-day way of talking about tunic and cloaks, terms we don't know very well. In the first century, most people wore a loincloth covered by a body-length tunic. The tunic was covered by an outer cloak. The inner tunic was a basic garment similar to a long nightshirt worn next to the skin. Jesus says that if someone sues you for your tunic, don't resist him. Give him your cloak too. The cloak or outer robe was indispensable. When given as a pledge, the cloak had to be returned before sunset since it was used by the poor as a sleeping cover. Jesus makes a startling demand here. Instead of defending themselves or seeking retaliation, his disciples must give liberally to the person who unfairly attempts to take their most basic necessities. Jesus is forcing his hearers to consider their values. He's showing them that they value honor and that they value things more than they value the kingdom of heaven. He's saying those same things to us. He's challenging his listeners to value the kingdom more than anything the world can take from them or from us. In his third image about forsaking personal retaliation, Jesus says, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. I don't know if you're aware of it, but Roman soldiers had the right to requisition food and to force locals into forced labor at will. We see an example of this in Scripture when the soldiers demand that Simon of Cyrene carry Jesus' cross to Golgotha. He was standing on the side. He said, hey, you, pick up the cross. Let's go. Roman soldiers often abused these privileges and took advantage of local inhabitants in all kinds of ways. They were hated by the Jews for doing so. Jesus tells his disciples, when forced to carry a soldier's equipment one mile, they were to carry it two, two miles. Jesus is saying, don't just submit to unjust demands, exceed them. Loving without limits means going an extra mile, even if you're misunderstood by your peers who view you as collaborating with the enemy which would have been the case if you carried a Roman soldier stuff an extra mile and your friends saw you, they would say, what are you doing? 
You know, you're, uh, you're in cahoots with the, with the guys that are occupying us. I've got a question for you. How do you and I respond to unfair demands by those in places of authority over us, over you, over me? When your boss makes unreasonable demands, do you appear to comply, but then secretly gripe and complain to the other employees behind his or her back? Or, conversely, do you choose to not, to, not, to not only comply, but to go above and beyond what is asked to demonstrate love without limits? In his fourth image, Jesus talks about generously meeting needs. He says, give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Here, Jesus calls his disciples to share what they have apparently without any expectation of repayment. The Old Testament was clear about the obligation of the, of the Israelites to lend to the poor. But Jesus here widens the obligation with a powerful image of generosity. His disciples were instructed to give whether or not the person asking for a handout or loan was legitimately poor and or scrupulous, to give freely to whomever seeks assistance, especially to those who may not really need charity, and to those from whom there's little chance of repayment, is the height of generosity. Jesus himself lived out this radical principle and is a vivid example for us. He loved so much that he gave himself for sinners, for you and for me who did not deserve his love and had no way of ever being able to repay him. Now, before we move on, it's important to note that there are other scriptures which provide some balance to all four of Jesus' images. As we learned last week, Jesus sometimes used hyperbole to underscore the seriousness of his message. So it's important to consider his words in the light of other scriptures. Remember last week when we were talking about Jesus' words on lust and uh, adultery, Jesus said, if your uh, eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, we talked about how Jesus doesn't really want us to gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands. He was using hyperbole to show us how serious lust is and to tell us to run away from it. So let's talk about some of these other scriptures that give a little balance to some of these things because it's important as we're talking on these topics. An example, a willingness to forego one's personal honor and endure insult is not incompatible with a firm stand for matters of principle and for the rights of others. In the New Testament, we find Paul appealing several times to his Roman citizenship as a means of protesting and sometimes avoiding unjust treatment, like scourging, for himself and for others. This indicates that there are times when one should avoid personal harm, and there are times that we ought not let people walk over us, unless we know this to be God's will for us at that time. Jesus' words about giving, when asked, need to be balanced against other New Testament scriptures, such as Paul's admonition that those who are unwilling to work um, shouldn't expect to eat. And we're assuming there that these are people who have the ability 
physically uh, to work, but they're unwilling. Paul taught that giving or loaning to such persons would be foolhardy. With this balance, we see that it's not necessarily wrong to avoid supporting panhandlers who may be using the money they collect for alcohol, drugs, or sometimes who are simply unwilling to work. My youngest son, Andrew, has has told me within the last year that a young man that he went to high school with, that he sees him regularly outside of a superstore here in town where my son works, and he's begging for money pretending that he is homeless and helpless. He has a home. He, he can make more money sitting in front of Superstore than he can in a, in a $15, hour, uh, $15 an hour job. So he chooses to do that. Things are not always as they seem. But let me say this. This being said, talking about these balances, it's so easy to rationalize personal vengeance And to rationalize our lack of love and generosity for others, we must let Jesus' words sound to the very depths of our hearts and not dismiss the uneasiness and conviction that Jesus' words arouse within us. Jesus' fifth example of greater righteousness exhorts us to forgo personal retaliation. We've just talked about that. His sixth and final example commands us to do something else. He commands us to love our enemies. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father in heaven. In this example, Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18 that says we are to love our neighbor. The statement, hate your enemies, remember said Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. Well, hate your enemies is not found explicitly in the Old Testament. However, Scripture tells us that God hates evil and that he judged Israel's enemies for their evil. The psalmist took this one step further, noting that God hates those who do wrong. The psalmist also said that he, the psalmist, hated those who hate God. Some groups within Israel identified neighbors as, fe- as uh, fellow Israelites and the evildoers as Gentiles and all the others who were outside of their faith community. Because God hates evil, those who embody evil were understood to be God's enemies. So it was natural for Jesus' audience to hate God's enemies. But Jesus undoubtedly stuns his listeners by focusing upon what God intended for us from the very beginning. He says something radical. Love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you. God does hate evil. But his intent is always to bring reconciliation. God loves every human and desires that all will come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that. Jesus' disciples are to look at people in this world as God does. We are to see them through his eyes and to love them enough to reach out to them 
with the message of reconciliation, even to pray for those who persecute us as Jesus' followers. When Jesus talks about being sons of your Father in heaven, we know that to be a son or daughter of God means to do God's will. Jesus tells us that in Matthew 12, 48 to 50. The family relationship includes the obligation to act like a son or daughter, which means loving as the Father loves. Well, Jesus follows up in verses 45 and 46 with two examples of God's common grace to all people, both evil and good, to demonstrate why his disciples, why you and I are to love both neighbor and enemy. First, Jesus says God causes the sun to rise on, and, and the rain to fall on both good and evil people, on both righteous and unrighteous. All of God's creatures are worthy of his care in this life. Ultimately, everyone will be accountable for his or her choice of evil or good, and God will someday judge those who choose to do evil. But in this life, right now, God's common grace extends to all. Second, Jesus draws on natural relationship and how God's love goes beyond normal human ties. All groups take care of their own members. Tax collectors love their friends and colleagues, their wives and children who love them in return. So there's no special recognition for Jesus' disciples when they, when you and I, love one another. Greeting or extending peace and warm hospitality to other believers doesn't merit any special status either. Gentiles, in other words, unbelievers, do that, Jesus says, to their own associates and family members. All groups take care of their own and to some degree view those outside their group as enemies. But God does not see the same groupings that we humans have created Love without limits is to be extended to all, to everyone that God has created. In this sixth example, we see a focus on the driving energy that enables Jesus' disciples to love without limits. We are to love as God loves. Two verses best sum this up. You know them, many of you do. John 3.16 says that God loved the world so much that he what? He gave. He gave his only son. The father freely gave his son for us. That is the profound nature of Jesus' love toward, toward us. And it becomes the example of the sacrificial love that we need to have for others, including our enemies. Romans 5, 8, and 10 tell us that Jesus died for us and reconciled us while we were still enemies of God. He, he did what he did. Jesus died for us while we were still, in, still sinners, while we were still taking our fists and saying, God, I'm going to do life my own way. I don't need you. Do we, do you, do I Love the way Jesus loved? Probably not as much as we think we do. To love with this kind of love 
will mean our full obedience to God's will for our lives. The continuing transformation of every part of our lives and dedicated outreach to the world around us. After his sixth example of greater righteousness, Jesus gives a powerful concluding charge. He gives a command. He says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does Jesus mean by this? Does he mean that his disciples, that you and I can reach sinless perfection in this life? Well, the Greek word teleos, translated perfect, denotes the idea of wholeness or completeness rather than sinlessness. The context of the verse is loving one's enemies. God's love is pure. It's complete. It's whole. It's mature. God loves without limits. The perfect, mature, and complete love of God toward all his creatures is the example of the love Jesus' disciples are to display toward both their, our, neighbors, and our enemies. While we will never be fully without sin in this mortal life, Jesus' disciples are to pursue the perfection, the completeness that, that is God himself. Being like God and loving like he loves is to be our ultimate goal in this life. Well, there are two traps that we can fall into related to Jesus' challenge to be perfect. And we, we talked how that means to be complete or to be whole, to be mature, just like God is. One trap is performance orientation. We find ourselves on a performance treadmill desperately striving to somehow live up to God's standards of righteousness. The problem with this choice and with this trap is that, that, that that's impossible. You and I can never live up to God's standards. Remember three weeks ago, Pastor Grant preached on impossible righteousness. You and I can never, can never do it on our own. But there's a second trap. The second trap is complacency. We find ourselves in this trap when we disengage from intentionally and passionately following Jesus. We're stuck in this trap when we say, well, Jesus did it all for me. I, I can just coast. It doesn't really matter how I live or if I sin. I, I know I'm going to heaven. Paul said, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? To live in this way in complacency is to deny the very faith that we profess. Well, what is the answer? If it's not performance orientation and just trying harder to please God, to get it right, to, 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 to lay aside our sin and to live up to his standards. And if the other option is complacency, and that's not going to get us anywhere, what's the answer? We must choose to live with restful dissatisfaction. By the way, that's not my term. I, I found, found that from somebody else, but I really like it. And, and this is what it means. We must rest in the fact that because Jesus has fulfilled the law, there is nothing more that I must or can do to be made right with God. 
At the same time, I balance that contentment with the desire to move on to complete maturity, to be like Jesus, to love like he loves. I rest in Christ's completed work, but choose dissatisfaction when I see immaturity or impurity in my heart, mind, and life. I'm also dissatisfied with the state of the world around me, apart from Christ, and I'm dissatisfied with loving less than the way Jesus loves. Are you caught in a trap? The trap of performance orientation? Perhaps the trap of complacency? If so, God can set you free today. He can free you to live in restful, dissatisfaction that trusts completely in Christ's righteousness but keeps you moving toward maturity where more and more you love with God's love, a love without limits.